Okay, well, um, last Sunday I was out of town. I had the very great honor and pleasure of going to D.C. to see my granddaughter baptized at All Saints in Chevy Chase, which is a beautiful place. The last time I was there was like at the very end of Paul Zoll's time there, and uh, it was for my daughter-in-law's confirmation. And uh, it was pretty nice because we had uh, Paul Zoll there and we had Bishop Salmon, who was uh, the retired bishop from South Carolina, who was serving, as some of you know, as a sort of a, what's the word, uh, a, a sort of a, an overseer bishop for those uh um, those parishes in the diocese of D.C. who really kind of needed, and and Bishop Chain of D.C. was gracious enough to allow it. So, you know that was um, it's a beautiful place if you if you ever get a chance to go, I heartily recommend it. It's 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 all built from quarried stone on the inside, and it looks like it's been there for 350 years. And it may have been there for a good bit of that because um, it was also Scout Sunday and they announced that the Scout troop who was there um, for Scout Sunday, it was their 101st year as a Scout troop sponsored by All Saints Chevy Chase, which must have put it back to like when scouting was first brought to the United States from... From, yes, it right. Baden Powell years. would have been a you know a spring chicken. Um, so anyway, um, we were at All Saints Chevy Chase, and so our granddaughter baptized, and we were with all of those family, and it was great. But I missed all of you, and it's good to be back now. Last week, um, Steve tells me that you got about halfway through the fifth and last of the trials that. Um, that Luke records that Paul withstood um, being on trial. And this is the most um, detailed um, account that we get of any of them. And it's fascinating in so many ways to consider what's going on. Um, Recall that Felix had been recalled to Rome. He he had been the... um, uh, the praetor before the praetor that we meet here in this chat in chapter 25, who is um, Festus. I love that. When I was a kid, I always watched Gunsmoke, and I, I had no idea that that Festus, the character, had a name that comes from biblical antiquity. I just thought he was, it was just a goofy name for a goofy guy. But Felix had been recalled to Rome to answer for some very serious um, suppression that he had done uh, of disputes between uh, what the uh, what the commentators call Jews and Syrians, which I understand to mean the Gentiles of that, of that province of Syria. Um, Josephus tells us that uh, he was a very uh, unprincipled and um, ruthless uh, praetor, but Portius Festus, who succeeded him, was much more enlightened. We don't know that much about Festus because, according to Josephus, he was only in office about two years and then he died. But we have um, 
Festus here having succeeded Felix. And um, what what we do know about him and what we read about him here, he seems like a very judicious and careful and even-handed praetor. Um, And so in chapter 25 and into the first part of 26, we see that, um, that Festus had offered to Paul the option of going to Jerusalem and being tried up there because the Jews wanted to put him on trial. Festus was listening to their charges and didn't really hear anything about the charges that invoked Roman law. And so having listened to the, to the Jewish authorities who wanted to put him on trial, he gave Paul that option. It sounds like in chapter 25 that maybe Paul is, discretion is the better part of valor to go up to Jerusalem and be tried in front of the Sanhedrin for, um, for religious crimes pretty high possibility of of being convicted. Whereas Paul said, um, I, I make my appeal to Caesar, to the, to the emperor. It sounds like Paul is taking the easy way out, but as we'll see, he's not. Um, so in two years, he stays in prison. And um, now, because um, Festus is going to give him his trial, he... Um, he, he hears Paul out, Paul appeals to Caesar, and then he the next thing he does is consult Agrippa. Uh, you probably heard a little bit about who Agrippa was last week. I'll just hit the highlights. I had intended to listen to it online, and I, and I ran out of week before I, before I got to it. My apologies. But Agrippa was the son of the Agrippa that we met back in Acts chapter 12, the one who had put James to death James, the brother of John, one of the two sons of Zebedee, the um, the sons of thunder, put him to death and was going to put uh, Peter to death also. But remember that Agrippa died this horrible death himself, um, for with with symptoms that may have been an intestinal disorder caused by parasites. But it was it was pretty terrible. Well, this Agrippa succeeded his father. He was the great-grandson of Herod the Great, who had murdered all of the the boy children uh, in the region around uh, Bethlehem uh, after after meeting with the three magi. Um, Agrippa II, who this one is, shows up with uh, what looks to be his consort, um, Bernice, well, Bernice is actually his sister, according to the historians. Um, there's a little bit of speculation that he and Bernice had some somewhat irregular relationships, but it, it certainly doesn't come through here. It's simply that she is with him as the as the sister of the of the king. But the king is young. He he was only 17 when his father died, and so. The part of his kingdom that he would naturally inherit under Roman authority, he had not inherited yet. He he uh, was a subordinate to the procurator Festus. So, but, but but Festus is like the Roman officials always did, where there is where there is a local king. He's taking great care to to treat the king with all 
authority that, that his office would bear, even though he hasn't fully acceded to the throne yet. Um, note in uh, chapter 25, verses 25 to the end, that um, Festus seems to be stumped over what to charge him with. He says, and he's talking to, Festus is talking to Agrippa, I found that he had done nothing deserving death, and when he appealed to his imperial majesty, I decided to send him. But I have nothing definite to write to our sovereign about him. Therefore I have brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I might have something to write for it seems to me unreasonable to send a prisoner without indicating the charges against him. Well, yes, it's very unreasonable. It's also contrary to Roman law. And um, uh, it, it, it sounds very even-handed. Stott's not having any of it. Stott doesn't buy that uh, explanation. Stott believes that Festus knew doggone well that there was not. He knew very well what the accusations were. And he also knew that there was, it's not that there was, uh, it was unclear what the claims were. It's that there was zero evidence to support the claims. That is, the claims that invoked Roman law. Again, remember that what he was charged with was sedition. That would invoke Roman law. Um, if it wasn't seditious, then it was simply a dispute, an intramural dispute, really, between among Jews about how Jewish... Um, uh, theology was working out with this Messiah, this fellow that that uh, was supposed to be dead, but Paul claimed was alive, as we saw last week. So anyway, we get into chapter 26, and I'd like if somebody would read chapter 26, verses 19 through 23, and then let's let's skip back to the beginning of the chapter for context. And then we'll get to what's in 19 through 22, uh, 23. 23, yes. All right, go ahead, copy. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Thank you. Um, this is the kind of the summing up of Paul's defense we read before last week that earlier in his defense, after Festus and Agrippa have called on Paul to speak and have given him permission to uh, to make his defense, that Paul is telling the story of how he, and he's told it before many times in front of Jewish uh, um, audiences as well as Roman ones, about how he was a... Uh, devout Jew brought up in the law and a, and a Pharisee and all the Jews in the room would remember him from when he was a student of the greatest of the Pharisees and how he was commissioned to go out and to persecute this church. 
And then he tells the story of his conversion. That This is the third time in the book of Acts that this story is told. The first time it's told in the, in the third person, narrated by Luke. And the second two times, including this one, it's told in the first person by Paul himself. And he's explaining to Festus and to Agrippa how he was sent to Damascus to bring back some of these believers to face trial in Jerusalem. And a bright light, brighter than the sun in the middle of the day, uh, came upon them and he heard the voice, the voice of Christ himself who said, why are you persecuting me? And it's here in this account, this third time that we, that we read this conversion story, that we get this very unusual um, statement by Jesus where he says, um, why are you persecuting me? It hurts you to kick against the goads. We talked about that a little bit when we read this story the first time in the third person. Um, kick against the goads is really to say it, it is impossible for you to resist this divine guidance um, goads are the prods that are used against farm animals to get them to go in you know into the pen into the chute to be shorn if they're sheep or to be um, to be uh, 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 shooed if they are horses or whatever uh, milked if they're cattle the prods why are you kicking against the goads it's a it's a phrase that, according to Stott, has roots in classical literature, um, the plays of Euripides and Aeschylus and Roman uh, playwrights all use this expression. So perhaps that's why we hear this expression used here, and it, it was not it was not in the earlier stories because here is Paul addressing um, Roman Festus and no doubt classically educated Agrippa. So he invokes that part of the story that had not been told before about kicking against the goads because it would be familiar to one with a classical education who had read these playwrights in, in Latin and Greek. Anyway, um, notice that um, Christ, Lord, tells Paul, get up, and stand on your feet. Um, that has a that has a ring of Old Testament to it. It happened with um, w with God and the prophets from time to time, but it also has a New Testament ring. Anybody remember one of the uh, parables, the one that 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 Margie dislikes so much, <coughs> the parable of the prodigal son. She dislikes it because too many people focus on the two sons. And she's right to, uh, to, that, that, that people who focus on the two sons in that parable miss the parable. The parable is about the father and the father's love. And what did the father do when the prodigal son comes back? He falls at his feet and he tells him, I'm not worthy to be your son. And what does the father do? He picks him up. He raises him up onto his feet and then he puts the cloak on his shoulders, the cloak of sonship, which is another reference to arraying oneself in the garments of righteousness. It's imputed righteousness. Well, that's very much what Jesus is doing to Paul right here. 
Lord is saying, get up, stand on your feet. That's imputed righteousness. He, he deserved nothing other than punishment for the, um, for the persecution that he'd been giving the early church. And yet Jesus says, get up. And then he says two things that are very important. He says in verse 16, I have appeared to you for the purpose to appoint you to serve and testify to the things in which you have seen. Testify. That's that Greek word from which we get martyr. I'm calling you to be a martyr, to go give testimony. And then he says in verse 17, I will rescue you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. That's the Greek word that translates apostle. One who is sent on a heavenly divine mission. He is going as a martyr and he's going as an apostle. And Paul is using this in his defense to Festus and Agrippa. And then this is where we picked up with the reading today. After that, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. I mean, of course I was following the heavenly vision. I got to Jerusalem. I went to the countryside of Judea. I went out to the Gentiles and they tried to kill me in the temple. But I am saying nothing, verse 21, 22, I am testifying to both small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would take place. Verse 23, here's the meat of it, that the Messiah must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to both our people and to the Gentiles. That is the very essence of the gospel. The Messiah comes and he suffers, not on a white horse with a sword in his hand. He comes riding on an ass with an olive branch in his hand. And he comes to, to deliver through his suffering and that he would proclaim light to all of the people, both the Jews and the Gentiles. That's when Jesus said, when John said of Jesus, that um, the true light, which is coming into the world and illuminates the entire world, this is Jesus. This is the light, uh, the light-dark imagery that we see over and over again. Um, earlier in his speech, he had made some reference, y'all read it last week, to um, it not being in any way unusual that I should be preaching to Jews about the resurrection because after all at least a good many of the Jews believe in the resurrection it's not clear what Agrippa might have believed he was as we remember by his heritage he came from both a he came from a mixed um, ancestry his uh, great-grandfather Herod the Great had married an Edomite woman and his all of the Herods had been some of them had been better than others. They had built some, some great public works. Um, Charles Gaston says that you can still see the docks down at Caesarea Maritima, down on the coast, which is today very close to present-day Tel Aviv. He says that you can still see the wharves and the docks that Herod the Great built for the commerce to come to Israel from the um, west of the Mediterranean. Um, but they were spiritually, they were a very um, 
unsettled group. They were not devout Jews. They were not. Um, they, they went through the motions because of their kingship. I suppose one had to, being the king over Judea and Galilee and all of these Jews. One has to go through the motions of being a devout Jew. But we don't propose to believe that Agrippa or any of his predecessors was all that devout a Jew. So when Paul is tell, when Paul is delivering this this speech, it's almost like speaking to Agrippa. He's speaking to as much of a non-believer as he is when he's speaking to Festus. Both of them, in Paul's eyes, in reality, are pretty much pagans. Um, what is, uh, let's read, I want to read the, the next section. Um, verses 24 through 32 of chapter 26. It goes to the end of the chapter. I had wanted to read just through 29, but I think we'll read the whole thing in one bite. 24 through 32. Any volunteers to do it? Okay, go ahead. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Except for these chains. Thank you. Then the king rose. No, no. Governor, yeah, go ahead and finish. That's, go and ahead. Governor, <coughs> Governor Ambernes and those who were sitting with them, and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Thank you. There, that last line... Um, Think back to in chapter 25 when Festus asked Paul, would you like to go up to Jerusalem? And Paul says, no, I insist on seeing the emperor. And here <laughs> at the end of this trial, Agrippa and Festus are both saying, you know, we could have let him go. But once he'd appealed to the emperor, it's almost like it's it's beyond their jurisdiction now to do anything other than to send him on to Caesar. As um, as Festus had said in the last chapter, if it's Caesar where you want to go, it's Caesar you shall go. And um, clearly Paul's defense here has convinced both Festus and Agrippa that nothing in Paul's preaching has come within light years of invoking Roman law. This is about the Messiah foretold in the Hebrew Scriptures 
and about Paul's dispute with the Jewish authorities about whether this Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah. But go back to the passage uh, at the beginning that we read, 24 uh, through 29. That's a remarkable exchange. It's not at all clear from the text or the context of the text what it was that caused Festus to interrupt Paul at this point. And why would he accuse Paul of being insane? In my um, translation, he said, Festus exclaimed, you were out of your mind, Paul. Too much learning is driving you insane. I looked up the, did a little research on the, on the Greek word used here for insanity and for being out of your mind. And, um, and it really kind of, of translates into a, a stormy rage. Um, the image I get is, is uh, King Lear out on the, the slope of the hills waving his fists into the storm and screaming his lungs out in grief and rage and under severe um, emotional pain. And that's kind of the impression that one gets from the translations of this word that not so much um, insanity in the legal sense, which um, is, is something entirely different, and not really uh, mental illness so much as under the stress of, of this um, circumstance, Paul is, Paul is babbling in a way that makes no sense. He is exclaiming in, in uh, inarticulate, uh, stormy rage. Well, we don't get the, the sense that Paul is raising his voice, nor that Paul is even terribly emotional. We'll see in this exchange, Paul is like completely in control of his emotions. So maybe what Festus was doing was, in, uh, was inserting a little bit of levity into it. Um, he was scoffing. We had seen before how when Paul was preaching, defending himself to Felix and Felix's wife, Drusilla, he was getting a little close to home. Remember, he was, he was um, uh, speaking to Felix and Drusilla about, um, about all sorts of sinful behavior. And we know from the historical record that uh, Drusilla was Felix's third wife and that he had seduced her in order to marry her as a sort of a social climbing way up the ladder. And um, when Paul was, was, uh, was speaking to Felix and Drusilla, he was sort of had a way of pointing the finger at them. And it may be that in this, um, Festus senses that Paul is getting a little close to home with these Jews who are here, then no doubt it's not just Festus and, and Agrippa and Bernice in the audience. It's any number of people. Probably Luke was there, having written this first-hand account the way he did. Um, and it, it might be that it was getting a little heavy, and so Festus had to inject a little bit of levity, a, a wise crack. Are you... Are you out of your mind? You've obviously spent too much time in the books 
because now, Paul, you're a raving lunatic. But look how Paul responds. Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking the sober truth. Sober. Sobriety. Sort of the diametrical opposite of what Festus was implying had gotten into Paul. You're right of your mind. No, I'm not. I'm cold sober. Uh, not in the alcoholic sense, but you can al- almost understand that parallel. Um, you're not speaking in your right mind because you're under some influence. No, I'm not. I'm cold sober. And you certainly get the impression from Paul's response that he is cold sober, that he's completely in charge of this exchange. And so now what he does, very clever, great debater Paul was. He turns and said, indeed, the king knows about these things. The king, this Jewish king, and to him I speak freely. I am certain that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this was not done in a corner. That is, it wasn't done out of sight. All Jews know about this. And then he says directly to the king, he says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Now, in English, in the English language, we have the same uh, we have the same word for both the the um, second person singular and the second person plural. It's you. In other languages, the second person singular you is used in situations of great familiarity. Like I'm talking to Steve and we're back and forth and you did this and I did that and and with great familiarity we're using the um, the first per, the, the second person singular but in more formal address in the French language and in the German language one would use the second person plural you well same thing in Greek according to Stott but here he's addressing Agrippa in the second person singular familiarly not only familiarly but going right to Agrippa right to the source do you believe? This is the same verb, by the way, the same second person singular that Jesus uses in the chapter 11 of the Gospel of John. Remember when he raises Lazarus from the dead and he comes back to Bethany and Martha meets him and she says, my Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus says, your brother will rise again. I know that he will rise again on the day of on the last day on the on, on the day of the resurrection. Jesus said, "I am the resurrection and the life. And whosoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live." Do you believe this? You, second person singular. Do you, Martha, believe this? That's exactly what Paul is saying to Agrippa here. He's putting Agrippa seriously on the hot seat, and so Agrippa. This is where I took the, the title for today's today's class. In some translations it reads, you almost persuade me to be a Christian. And you can imagine he's saying this with a little bit of levity too. In, in the translation that we read, it is so quickly are you persuading me to be a Christian. And Paul, again, completely in control of the situation. Not about to lose his cool, not about to lose his patience, not about to lose his point. He says... 
whether quickly or not. I pray to God that not only you, but also all who are listening to me, everybody in this room, may one day become such as I am, except for these chains. And according to Stott, Paul probably reaches up and he rattles his chains. He's got these, these manacles around his wrists and the long chains that, 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 that weigh him down. And he reaches up and he shakes his arms and it rattles and you can hear it in the entire praetorium. And that is where the whole thing ends. Every one of you, I pray, whether now or later, will become just as I am but for these chains. He's not saying, I need the chains off of me. He's saying, you do not have the chains on you. That's a strong, powerful, powerful witness that Paul is bearing. And I can't help but think that the reason Paul didn't go to Jerusalem, the reason Paul stayed here, the reason Paul appealed to the emperor, Paul could have been let go. He could have gone to Jerusalem. He could have gone anywhere he wanted, back to Asia Minor, but he didn't. He didn't do any of those things. He went to Rome. Why did he go to Rome? Because Jesus appeared to him himself and said, you will preach in Rome. So Paul is, I think we see in Paul's composure an understanding that all of this is in the hands of God. That that however it works out, he's going to Rome. And so he's not afraid that speaking the truth to power is going to result in his execution here because he's got it on, on the good word of Christ himself that he is going to Rome to be the apostle and to be the martyr. So, that's it for chapter 26. Next week, chapter 27, Freck.